Welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. Density. It is a word that encapsulates what some believe to be the singular solution to the housing shortage facing American cities. What advocates of that solution usually mean when they refer to density is density of physical houses and buildings. By increasing the supply of houses, the argument goes, density can alleviate the housing shortage and in turn the price of owning or renting a home. But density can also mean something else that is related but different. That is, density not in the number of homes, but in the number of people living in a single home. This is, in effect, what it means to have roommates. More people living in a single home means more people to share the cost of living in that home. This idea is what is behind the advent of so-called co-living apartments, in which renters lease individual rooms while sharing common spaces such as the kitchen and living room. Brad Hargraves is the founder and former CEO of Common and joins today to discuss how Common is leading the co-living movement to make renting easier and more affordable in even the nation's most expensive cities. Stay tuned. Brad Hargraves, welcome to CitySpeak. Max, thank you so much for having me on. Your career didn't begin in the residential real estate space, as I understand. Before Common, you founded an education company, then were in venture capital. What was your life like BCE, that is, before Common Era? I've been sitting on that one for a long time. You have to forgive me. <laughs> I love it. So I've always kind of worked at the intersection of bits and atoms of the physical and digital worlds. In college, I sold antique furniture online, bought it from universities, resold it on the internet. And after college, I graduated kind of into, um, in 2008, kind of into the downturn and saw that many of my peers, even peers that had gone to great schools and been in theory well-educated, were struggling in their careers, were struggling to get the kind of work get the kind of careers they wanted. And on the flip side, there were all these startups, these technology companies, these exciting new models that were innovating in the digital realm. And there was just a real skills gap. You know, Unless you had majored in computer science and in many cases had been coding since you were a kid, those fields weren't accessible to you. So in 2010, with a few friends, I started General Assembly which became the largest trade school in the U.S. teaching technology and design skills. And we have focused on brick-and-mortar campuses, heavily integrated with local employers, really kind of taking what employers were looking for, for what technologies, what skills, what thought processes, and building those into curricula that covered topics like web development, digital marketing, data science, UX design, think about it as 21st century traits. And we saw a lot of success there, building it into campuses in 20 cities, tens of thousands of students per year through our doors. As you might imagine, running school faced a lot of housing challenges. So our campuses were in the middle of urban centers. And it wasn't just our students. It was our instructors, our employees, people in our ecosystem 
would move to New York, move to San Francisco, move to DC and struggle to find quality, affordable places to live in the neighborhoods that they wanted. So even though education and housing feel like very different worlds, and in many ways there are, there is a very common thread there. So given your bona fides there in kind of the technology world, as well as as a VC prior, you seem to have approached common with the same kind of problem solution mindset that many technology founders have when starting a company. What was, and still is, of course, the problem that you identified with residential real estate in cities? And what is the co-living, specifically the common solution? It's very easy to say that the problem is affordability. And that's certainly true. It was true in 2015 when we started Common, and it is still true today in 2022 uh, that the problem is affordability. But I think to really understand that, you have to dig in and get to the next level of why is there a lack of affordability? What processes, what market forces make it difficult to build and sustain affordable housing in big urban centers? We were coming at this, obviously, from the perspective of a private company from industry. And so if you're going to offer something more affordably, there has to be a give for that get. And there's kind of a natural model out there in cities. You know, 25 million Americans live with roommates, live in a home or apartment shared with someone they're not related to. And we looked at that model and said, it's very ad hoc. You know, you wouldn't say under the radar, but it's not acknowledged as a part of the housing stock. But it absolutely is in New York. There's a study that came out about 10 years ago that indicated that 18% of all households in New York are roommate households, unrelated adult sharing unit. That's more than there are nuclear families, parents with kids in the five boroughs. And New York is an example. It's an extreme example, but it's certainly not the only one out there. So we looked at all this data and we said there's an opportunity to build a new type of housing using the roommate experience, but improving upon it. You know, we always thought about it and still do as roommates done better. And that was the thesis by which we started Common. Now, fast forwarding to today, I'd like for you to play out for our listeners how Common actually works for tenants or members, as I think you refer to them. So let's say I'm a prospective tenant, for example. What does my lease look like? And more importantly, what's my day-to-day as a common tenant look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I would note that I'm happy to talk about how common has evolved over the past seven years since we started it. But I think it's important to caveat that only about half of what we do today are co-living apartments. We are seen and view ourselves as an innovative residential designer and operator. But that innovation has a lot of tentacles at this point. Not only are we doing co-living, we operate a lot of micro apartments, a lot of family-oriented apartments. We've, in addition, been getting into workforce housing. So there's a lot of parts of Common that go beyond just our core co-living thesis, although that's still a really core part of what we do. So talking about co-living specifically, we think about it really as keeping the good parts of living with roommates, the affordability, the social environment when you want it but getting rid of as many of the annoyances as we can control. So we clean all common areas once a week. You know, what do roommates fight about? They fight about a dirty kitchen, someone leaving their dishes in the sink. They fight about splitting the bills. 
They fight about buying furniture. Whose couch is it anyway? You know, one day one of the roommates leaves and they take the couch with them. There's huge thrash and issues when a roommate leaves a lease that whoever's on the lease, it's their financial responsibility to backfill that roommate. So we relax those rules. We provide weekly cleaning. We furnish the units. We provide shared kitchen and bathroom supplies like toilet paper, paper towels. So they're not fighting about who's going to buy those things. So it's really about kind of taking all the issues that roommates fight about that we have any sway or control over and addressing those through an operational set of services and being able to provide, mostly through density, a price point that is all in on par or better with what you're going to get on Craigslist, but providing a much better, higher quality and more predictable environment that's 30% cheaper than a studio apartment in a comparable building. You referenced that today, only 50% of Commons operations and model is devoted to co-living. Let's hear about the other 50%. Absolutely. So I would really divide it into two separate branches. One are traditional private apartments within buildings with a co-living component. So one evolution of the co-living sector over the last five years has been away from small buildings that are 100% co-living. So a developer going and saying, hey, I'm going to build 23 bedroom apartments and that's it to a developer saying, I'm going to incorporate 23-bedroom co-living units into a 200-unit residential building that has a mix of co-living, studios, ones. It might be some shared bathroom co-living, might be some private bathroom co-living. And by doing that, they're able to really capture the widest set of potential tenants and take advantage of those tenants upgrading in place, which is something we see across the board. A tenant will move into a co-living unit. They'll be there a year. They'll get a significant other. They'll get a pet. They'll make a little bit more money and say, hey, I'd like a studio. I'd like a one-bedroom apartment. And they can upgrade in place. They want to stay a part of the community. We're managing the whole building. The events we do are open to the whole building. And so they'll upgrade into one of the traditional apartments and that will open a room that someone else can come in and take. So that kind of upgrading in place is really, I think, a logical extension and expansion of co-living. And you see developers who never, ever five years ago would have considered building a ground-up co-living building, looking at co-living as a tactic as opposed to a programmatic asset strategy. So rather than saying, hey, I'm going to start a co-living development division of my firm, They say, I'm going to incorporate 20 co-living units into this building because it creates a lower rung on the ladder where people can come into my building who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. It differentiates it from the building next door and it creates a natural funnel of tenants into my building without disrupting the environment, without upsetting my lender, without making it look different, which I can get more into some of the challenges that you run into from building a co-living asset. Actually, please do. That was my next question. Absolutely. So the biggest challenge when we started down this path of building a co-living company 
is how do you get developers and lenders on board? They are putting their own capital at risk. They're putting their own reputations at risk. And we're not a developer. We are a designer. We are a management company. That's what we've always done. It's a seat we've always had. We knew we wanted to bring this idea, bring this concept into a lot of cities, into a lot of markets. And developing in a city that you're not in is very, very difficult. There's a steep, steep learning curve there. Understanding local code and restrictions. Not even co-living specific. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the basics of filing construction permits and getting approval and doing all of those things you need to get a building built. And so those are challenges that we wanted to work with local development partners on. So our seat is the manager and the designer. We partner with developers. And really, we have to arm those developers, those GPs, who are out taking risk to build residential buildings with the data, the information that they need to get their LPs, their investors on board, who might be wealthy individuals, might be large institutions. And if you're going and saying, hey, I'm going to build five-bedroom apartments and rent them out by the month, you're going to run into a lot of problems. If you're going and saying, hey, I'm going to build a 200-unit building, of those, 25% are going to be co-living units. We're going to sign 12-month leases. Maybe there'll be some flex terms in there, you know, some three months, some six-month terms. And here's all the data about how those people stick. So renewal rates are not substantially lower than traditional apartments. In some cases, they're higher. And they upgrade in place. They're going to fill the studios. They're going to fill the ones. That's the information that you need to get a lender comfortable with building this product. And they're ultimately the limiting factor to building any kind of new housing. And so would you say that the shift recently toward a more hybrid model whereby you have a single building that incorporates both co-living and traditional units is a response to that challenge? Yes, it's a response to a couple of challenges. And the way to think about it is, you know, really looking at economies of scale and operating residential buildings. It is not substantially harder to do a 200-unit deal than to do a 20-unit deal from a developer standpoint, from a lender standpoint. It is much easier to manage a 200-unit building than to manage a 20-unit building. Because for a 200-unit building, you have dedicated staff on site. They're not shuttling between buildings. With a 20-unit building, that has to be a part of an ecosystem of nearby buildings to support maintenance, cleaning, leasing, management, all the resources you need on the ground. And so you need to charge a much higher management fee to that building to make it make any kind of financial sense. So we've seen a lot of benefits of managing much larger buildings and co-living within an ecosystem of other types of units. So that's really been the journey for us and where we've come out over the past seven years. I think I'd like to close with a question about the overall lifestyle philosophy, so to speak, that Common espouses, which is one that elevates sharing over individual ownership. Already in the US, there is at least, I think historically, a pretty strongly rooted societal preference 
for housing ownership over rentership. And that's manifested even how public policies favor home ownership. But what Common is doing seems to go beyond even the typical rentership and says that people are willing not only to rent their house, but also to share it with others. Is that in your mind an uphill battle? In other words, are you fighting against a housing philosophy that is too strongly ingrained in America? Or do you think that that cultural preference is actually changing? So living with roommates is nothing new. Living in smaller spaces in urban centers is nothing new. As I mentioned earlier, 25 million Americans live with roommates. Many people are going to make the trade of saving money, of affordability versus space. And as long as you're providing people a private space, private bathroom, private room, space to get away, many of them are willing to make that trade to live in a great neighborhood in a great city near their work, near amenities, near bars, near coffee shops, near the places they want to be. Now, you could say there's a certain stage of someone's life where that happens a lot. And absolutely, our median age is around 29 in co-living. So it's a little bit later than a lot of people expect. There's also a number of places within people's lives where that could be an appealing place to go. We have a number of people out of breakups, divorcees, who move into co-living. They need to move quickly. They don't have furniture. Affordability is often a big value proposition. And being a part of community, not being alone. Suburban design, which is not necessarily perfectly overlapping with homeownership. There are a lot of great designs for homeownership out there that emphasize community. So I'm not anti-ownership at all. But I do believe that the way that often manifests in suburban design encourages loneliness and makes us more isolated. So it's certainly interesting to us, not something we're doing today, but there are other people who are pursuing interesting things that try to combine homeownership with a more thoughtfully community-oriented design. And I'm hoping that over the next few years, you start seeing some of those ideas gain popularity. Brad Hargraves, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Max, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. This has been City Speak with Max Masudafarkas, produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with audio production and music by Greg Gordon-Smith. Stay tuned for our next episode. <laughs>